Greetings everybody. Today we're starting a series wherein I'm going to be teaching through the first few chapters of Romans. Let's say Romans uh, chapter 1 to 10 and I want to do that verse by verse. This is a mammoth of a task and I think it's going to take a long time. Uh, but before we get into that, I would like to just share my heart a little bit about our Sunday messages and how I see this. I've, I feel in my heart to take our Sunday message and make it more of a message wherein we teach deeply on the Word of God. And then I will use the Facebook messages that I will do. Uh, I will on a more regular basis make Facebook live uh, costs. And then you guys know very well that I've got the WhatsApp messages that goes out on a regular basis. And the Facebook and WhatsApp messages is would then be focused on preaching to a crowd that I, in my mind, would look at and think they don't know the good news at all. This message would be uh, encouraging and simple and also messages that you can share with your friends. But the Sunday message will be for those that want to know more, that want to go deeper into the scriptures. And that is the format that I would like to use. I was feeling in my heart that I don't want to uh, live from a perspective wherein I want to do both on a Sunday wherein the Sunday message is all also preached to, and when I, in my mind, always when I preach, I envision a crowd of people in front of me, wherein I see people that uh, bring friends that hears for the first time, people that don't know anything, people that are not Christians at all, and then also a crowd of people that want to know more, that has studied the scriptures for a while, and they want to learn more. And then in that, mindset you try and address every uh, segment of the crowd that is represented or segment of uh, people's thoughts that is represented but I want to take the Sunday message and make it more of a teaching message where we cater for those people that want to learn more okay so um, with that said we're going to Look at Romans chapter 1, and the reason why I want to use Romans, and this is how it came about. I was sitting and saying, Lord, I would like to minister and preach to the people on, on Sunday, and what should I uh, preach about? I just was thinking in my heart, what, what message is there? And then I was thinking, well, let me teach on Romans chapter 4, talking about God justifying the ungodly and how that works. And then I realized there are concepts in Romans chapter 4 that you cannot explain unless you've gone to Romans chapter 1. And uh, so I thought, well, let me then jump to Romans chapter 1 and explain a little bit and so forth. And then I thought, no, let let us just do the whole thing and explain it in an in-depth way. And that will really enrich you. As you go through this and as we walk through this, we're going to learn many things. And um, I would encourage you guys to get the notes right to our office info at dynamicministries.com and you will get the notes before the service. Uh, I've, I've already done the whole of Romans chapter 1. It's about 17 pages of an A4 uh, of notes. So, uh, or 12, 12 pages I think it is of notes, which is the scriptures printed out, uh, all the Greek, Hebrew, all those kind of things, cross-references, which helps you so that when we go through this, you can just spot it 
down and you can read with and um, and there's also more than what I say uh, in these notes. So if you want to get that, if that is your kind of thing, get it. What we're going to look at and what we will see in this whole study of Romans or the first 10 chapters of Romans is we're going to look at uh, God and his revelation and purposes that he has with man. We're going to look at who God is, who man is, what salvation is, what justification is, what righteousness is, what faith is, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation. All those things are going to be defined and explained uh, what it is and what Paul had in his mind when he wrote that and what the crowd of people would have heard when he used these terms. You know, look at adoption, for instance. You will find, and those of you that have listened to messages before, we will find that the Jewish understanding of adoption or God's understanding of adoption is completely different than what we have in our westernized world when it comes to adoption. We're going to look at the uh, necessity of resurrection, what fruit bearing is by the power of God. We're going to study out early church traditions, the, tradition, uh, the, the Christian hope, the incarnation, and even what the word all means. Some of you think, well, and we've heard this many times, preachers say, all means all in the Greek. No, it doesn't. All doesn't mean all. All has got a context wherein it means all. So there are certain things we're going to look at, and I think it's very important. When I look at the church, and I look at my own life, and walking in the grace message now for almost 25 years, I find that understanding plays a very big role. What I mean, understanding what the Apostle Paul wrote would be important. Now, I was just writing a, an article on um, the immortality of the soul versus resurrection and what that means. And as I started out this article, I used it as a dialogue between me and fear, wherein fear comes and says, Bertie, why do you want to rock the boat again? You've just written a book called Jesus is the Tithe and got a lot of people upset with you. Why would you now want to write on this? Dumb it down and simply just give people what they want. All they want is they want an encouraging grace message to get them through the day. That's what they want. And just if you give people what they want, you will surely live and not die. Now, <laughs> uh, every time, you know, we, we as preachers come and we preach a message that is radical or a message that touches the roots of what we believe, it is uncomfortable should a person not agree with that message or with what he said or have their core of their belief tweaked a little bit here and there and we then as preachers are facing the maybe anger of people or I think the biggest thing that a preacher faces is that a person wouldn't want to hear him out all the way and reject the truth and then live without that and be an enemy of that truth well with that said we're getting into Romans chapter 1 and I want to say that we're going to touch some deep stuff we're going to touch some of our core beliefs. We're going to look at um, the makeup of man, what man is. We're going to look at things like Genesis and the creation story where we're going to see that Adam and Eve was much more than just historical figures. 
but that they were also um, figures that was presenting the um, patterns we find in man and where this patterns that's found in all people is presented to us in story form in Genesis. We're going to look at that. Uh, we're going to look at, like I said, the, the, the creation story. What is it all about? Who was God? Who was Adam? What is the wrath of God? All from the perspective of what is already true in man. Now, let us start off with Romans 1 verses 1 to 7. This is what it says. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, there is so much just in that verse. Paul comes, he says, Paul, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I am called a sent one. And when he says, I'm a sent one, in his mind, he's immediately referring back to the time when Jesus sent him to go and preach after he has seen the resurrected Christ appear unto him on the road to Damascus. And as Jesus appeared to him and uh, showed him who he was as a physical resurrected human being, and he made he, or he came to the conclusion that the apocalypse, the revelation of everything that God had in mind from the beginning, was now revealed as God saving the whole human being. God's not just saving the soul. God's not just saving Israel from the oppression of. Uh, a Gentile influence or Rome, but God is actually saving people. Where God made it His business to save us, should we then now use um, Gnostic language, He would save us wholly, spirit, soul, and body. He would preserve the whole human being. Paul has this in mind. And from there he writes and he says, I am Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Or actually, when he says a servant, doesn't he doesn't describe his service unto Jesus, but he actually describes himself as one that is that has, according to the old Mesopotamian way of uh, a small nation relating to a bigger nation that's got power and authority that can easily take over take them over wherein they willfully submitted to the bigger nation still kept their individuality but they were under the powerful protection of the greater nation that's what he has in mind the smaller nation would then be called the servants of the greater nation although they still had their own councils and own will and so forth so what paul is saying here i am paul and i am under this beautiful rule and protection of jesus christ i am called the one that was sent by jesus sent with what message sent with a message that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, and that there is victory over death. And that this Jesus, who has victory, is now ruling over man. He says here, I've been separated unto the gospel of God. Now, he doesn't come and say it is just my gospel. There's other places where he does do that. He doesn't say the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the gospel of the, of the apostles. He comes and he says, I have been set apart. I have been sent to declare the good news that God has for humanity. 
the good news of God. That is what he is saying. He's referring to the gospel that Christ saves the very good news that God has brought forth deliverance to humanity wherein they are saved from their sin and death by the power of God. Where God brings the solution to our sickness, to our disease, and the greater sickness and disease then is sin in the flesh. So Paul comes just in verse 1. He says, I'm here, I have been, I'm an apostle, I'm sent out, and I'm bringing the gospel of God. Now that is very beautiful, just to think of it that way. When you think of God, God has a gospel. You know, traditionally in our mind, and this is not preached that way, but this is what is in our mind is, there was a picture of an angry father and then a Jesus that has good news that the father cannot punish you anymore because he's died. But Paul bridges all of that. He comes and he says, listen, I've got good news from God. I'm preaching the good news of God. The good news, the gospel, uh, that is that there is a God that brings and shares his life with people. This good news, you will see in the notes there, the second point there, I say it is the message wherein God has reconciled man unto himself. Now just a little bit of a hint on what reconciliation is, is man, when, when he sinned, and when Adam sinned, what man was saying was, I will solve my mortality. I will solve my problems. I will use wisdom, and by my wisdom or knowledge of what's right and wrong, I will have a good life in this world. But God's, God came, and he has reconciled man back unto God, which means it is not for man to solve his own problems and live by his own wisdom. God has now taken man and brought him back to God, where is God's problem to solve sin in the flesh. It's God's problem to solve our problem of uh, uh, ending whatsoever destroys us and getting us to share in his life. All of that just in Romans 1. That is what's in the back of Paul's mind. Now, when you read your Bible uh, or even listen to a message or think of the Bible, think of a book that was written, you must realize that this Bible, if you, if you think of this book, God didn't have this book fall out of heaven on the laps of people and now they have a Bible which God wrote. That is not how it worked. This book was written over thousands of years by God through people whom he inspired, whom he gave a logic to think and reason, and inside their political situation that they were in, inside their normal family situation that they were in, their loneliness, their hatred, their fear, and all those kind of things, they felt it necessary to write to other people under the inspiration of God or just to give advice and they wrote things down. What they wrote, they wrote inside the understanding of their immediate surroundings. And that's how they wrote. Like, let's take Paul for an example. When we take Paul, we cannot 
think of what he wrote in the light of westernized living. We have to put ourselves into his shoes. We have to go and say, think of Paul where he was sitting, maybe with a little lamp and he was writing or where he was in jail in a very difficult situation. Or as he wrote Romans, he was traveling from one town to another town. The place that his travel might have taken a week or two. And he's writing whenever the wagon is standing still. He thinks and he's writing something and then he thinks of his letter. And as he's thinking and pondering and he thinks, well, I need to add this in. I, need to add, I, I should add this in there. And then he adds. And that's how he writes. Paul didn't go and sit down and just write the whole of Romans in uh, two hours or something like that. It didn't work like that. If, if you study it out in depth, you realize it doesn't work. It, that's not how it worked. We see Paul here coming and he writes chapter 1. And when he says, I'm an apostle, there's a background to why he uses that word. To say, I'm an apostle. There's a reason why he said that. And that was how God called him. When he says the gospel of God, think for yourself, why did he not say the gospel of Jesus? He said the gospel of God. Because it is God having a good news message towards man. So church, as we read, and I want to encourage you, as you read your Bible, and I know, um, and I don't want you to feel condemned or guilty about this, I know that there are people that don't read their Bible. You don't see need for reading the Bible. You feel I have a relationship with God. I feel God touches me. I listen to messages and I walk as what the early church would have walked. The early church didn't have Bibles. Do you know that uh, I would say 90% of the early church didn't read Bible. They didn't have a Bible to read. 90% of the early church didn't read the writings of Paul on a regular basis. Because they didn't have that. There was no money to uh, transcribe all of Paul's letters and give each one his own copy in papyrus. Papyrus was only something that the rich could have. Writing was a luxury. Uh, Not many people could read and write. There were people that could read and write and they would take the letters of Paul and once a week they would read it in the church. And that was how people read Bible. You might say, well, that's how I also read Bible. Somebody can read it to me once a week or I listen to a message where I get it once a week. If you want to do it that way, um, I don't see that you're going to lose your salvation. But if you are a person that feels that you have uh, and, and I want to just say this. I don't. I want to say. I don't say you're going to lose your salvation. Neither will I say that you are worse off. Once you've believed the truth, my friend, your life is born from the truth. But should you go and read your Bible, and you want to study the Scriptures, and you want to read, let us read it in a way that it does not contradict the truth, wherein we just take any verse, anywhere, and just read that verse, actually contradicting what the true message is. What I also want to say is, for those that do have a passion and want to study the Scriptures and read the Bible and uh, uh, open the Bible and read some verses before you go to bed at night, you will find passages that seems very difficult to understand, that seems to contradict. But when you read it, like I'm reading now in Romans chapter 1, talking about the gospel of God, 
and we start to do it with historic background and wanting to know and not being in a hurry. That's another key. Don't be in a hurry to understand everything in one day. Salvation is not found in understanding every verse in the Bible. Salvation is found in Jesus, my friend. Salvation is found in believing that if salvation is not even found in believing. Salvation is found in Christ. Believing is when you make use of the salvation that's found in Christ. You just believe Jesus died and he rose again. And through him, he gives you life. And he actually then lives your life. That's what the Bible says. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, now, uh, with that said, let's go into Romans chapter 2. And now it's talking about the gospel of God. It says, which he, which is God, promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we find that God promised the gospel by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We even see in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says that when he talks about his gospel or the gospel that he preached, he says it's in accordance to the Scriptures. And when he says the gospel is in accordance to the scriptures, he's not referring to one or two verses. He's actually saying, and this is what he tries to communicate, that all the scriptures communicates the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the Messiah. And that's what he means when he says according to the scriptures. According to scriptures means all of the scriptures is saying and pointing to what God has promised from the beginning. Um, God has seen the uh, the gospel was seen as the word that God had promised from before time. We find this in Titus one verses one to three, as well as First uh, John one verses one to three, which was the word or the promise of life. So God had a gospel from the beginning. Church, you need to realize that God preached the gospel to Adam. The gospel is not an invention that had to take place. After God's plan in Adam failed. The gospel is not God's second plan. The gospel is not God's uh, what God had to create after man fell. No. God promised man eternal life. He was the only immortal being. He made man from the dust of the earth. And this man didn't have eternal life in himself inherently, and he offered him a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and he promised him eternal life. That promise of God to Adam was now being fulfilled in that God raised Adam from the dead. Jesus is called the last Adam. The Adam ent- Jesus entered the death of the first Adam and then was raised up, and what God promised the first Adam, happened in Jesus. This is now the gospel of God manifesting in our times. That is, <laughs> this to me is fascinating. It is absolutely awesome to see how the God that promised from the beginning over a period of five or 6,000 years kept to his word. And the people in the middle of that time, the people that were in the time of the Exodus or when they were in the times of wars in the promised land and all those kind of things, they 
I think they didn't even think of what God has promised before time. They did, or before the world began. They didn't think of the promise of eternal life. They could not even formulate the concept of immortality and bodily immortality in their way of thinking. The Mesopotamian logic of eternal life was the ability to procreate. Because they knew that they could never live eternally in their bodies. And the only way their name could continue was if their seed could live and they could bear children, and their children could bear children, and their children could bear children. That was their concept of immortality and eternal life. The Mesopotamian concept, and which, and in that time there, which would include the mindset of Abraham, because Abraham was of Ur of the Chaldeans. He comes from ancient Mesopotamia. He was well known with that. His way of thinking was the way of thinking from where all of Israel came forth. That's how these people thought. They had temples and they had uh, uh, idols and gods and all those kind of things. You must realize that Israel and whatever God said to them was set inside a certain political ancient time and way of thinking and reasoning. They didn't even think of... uh, bodily immortality what they were thinking of was procreation that's the way i live forever but god made a promise before the time that he will share who and what he is with man that message got lost in the minds of people but was kept in the prophetic in what was written and then Thousands of years later, about five and a half thousand years later, after Adam, we find that Jesus was born. And what God had promised, the first Adam, manifested in the lost Adam. And this resurrected Jesus is the first fruit of what God has promised all of us. And we see it in the middle of time. We see it manifest. And from this truth, we now realize that what God promised in the end came into the middle of time, which is Jesus. And that what is in the end will not be by our works, but by the work of the one man that he brought into the middle of time. And we find that the first Adam was a shadow of him. We find that Abraham was a shadow of this man. We find that Israel was a shadow of this man. We find everything in the Old Testament writings written unto this man who would make the promise of God come true in people who does not have the ability to do it by themselves, who is in need of a doctor, who is in need of a savior. So he comes here and he says that this message was promised afore by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, let, let me quickly go to First John. I didn't put it in the notes there. And I want to just look at this promise because there must, might be some people that are watching this for the first time and uh, don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about the promise that was from the beginning. When we look at the Word of God, When the Bible says the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, it refers to this promise that he had. 
You must remember that God's promise existed prior to the writings of scriptures. God promised Adam and Eve eternal life. God promised man immortality when he placed the tree of life in the garden whereby they could go and eat of it and live forever. That doesn't mean they would become spiritually immortal. That meant that they as humans would become immortal and have eternal life as human beings. That is what it means, the, the, the word that was from the beginning. So God had a word from the beginning, a word of promise. This word, this promise was then written about in the prophets. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 2 there. Paul is saying that uh, uh, I'm talking about the gospel. The word gospel means good news, news, the announcement of good news. Gospel would be when a runner would come to Israel, should Israel be in war, and bring the message of the victory. The victory over the enemy. So it is the good news message of victory. So the good news that God, God had good news for us. I will conquer your death. I will conquer your mortality. Adam sinned and said, no, 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 God, I don't believe I even have a problem. I am an eternal being. I can live forever by my own power and by my own wisdom, do my own things. God said to him, man, I promise that you. Man veered away, but God never changed his promise. God's promise was sure, even in the disobedience of Adam. Then what God has promised was said to the prophets all the time. And then what God has promised now manifested and came forth. What did God promise? 1 John 1, listen to this. That which was from the beginning. What was from the beginning? The word. In the beginning was the word. What word? The word of promise. The promise of eternal life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. We've heard about this. How did we hear about it? Through the prophets, which we have seen with our eyes. What's he referring to? To the birth of Jesus Christ, which we have looked upon and handled with our hands. When he talks about the handling of the hands, John is referring to the time when Jesus said, Touch me. It is me that was raised from the dead. So he refers to three things here. Jesus being or Eternal life being promised by the Father. We've heard about it through the prophets. Then it was born. Then our hands handled this word after the resurrection. So he is saying that the word is the promise of eternal life. Here, let's hear on. It's, uh, let's read on. Which we've looked upon our hands have handled of the word of of life. So what was the promise? What is the gospel that God had from the beginning? The gospel of God is God's promise of life, meaning you will not have to try and live by your own works. You can live by the power of God. But in Facebook I said it this way earlier this weekend. My wife and I we were lying in bed and the light was already off and we were about to fall asleep and I said to her Imagine we die now. You might say, what a sad thing to say. But hear this. I said to her, imagine we die now. And in the next moment, 
It is the resurrection. Imagine Jesus, then I said, imagine Jesus dying on the cross and the next moment he opens his eyes and he sees that he is in the tomb, but he is alive and he takes his first breath. Imagine that. I mean, if you held underwater and you come out and you take your first breath, I mean, you're very happy. But imagine you were dead. And now you wake up and you take your first breath. It would be, wow. It, it would be so satisfying. But imagine taking that breath and you know, I don't have to take the next breath in order to stay alive because I'm not living anymore by the breath I'm taking and the food I'm eating, the very cells of my being, my very body is alive on account of God and not air I breathe or food I eat. Amazing. (laughs) That is what God promised man from the beginning. That is the word of life, which was promised by God came through the scriptures, which was born, which manifested the word of life. Verse 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and we bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life. Wait, when it talks about bear witness, he's talking about them being witnesses that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And show unto you that eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So God said, I have eternal life, and I promise you eternal life. That eternal life was called the Word, that Jesus is the eternal life of God. If we want to talk about the pre-incarnated Word of God, it is the promise of eternal life. The very eternal existence of God is what He promised us. It became a message, it became flesh, and now we see that that message that became flesh is now having an effect on everyone that believes so that man can live effortlessly. That you don't have to live by your own works. That you can rest in the eternal life of God. When Jesus was raised from the dead bodily and he took his first breath in that tomb, And he knew what it felt like to bodily, as a full human being, not be in need of the next breath to bodily live. That truth that took place there, that that life he was living there was effortless. How much effort will you have to put in to know after you've breathed a breath To think, I don't have to breathe another to stay alive. I mean, the question is even ludicrous. Because we know that it's impossible for us by our own works to do that. Now, imagine that truth. That I don't have to live by the next breath I take. But my life is sealed in God. Imagine that truth starts to settle into your heart. Knowing that that is what belongs to you. And that that resurrection of Jesus was, he was, he became, he entered your death. 
conquered your death and now is seated at the right hand of God from where who and what he is is promised to you to be made true by Christ and God. Once that starts to become your reality, you will not think, well, I have to do the next business deal in order for my business to live. I will have to do the next good thing for my wife and my children in order for me to have a good relationship with them and to have life in my family. All of a sudden you will know God's life is your life. And you will start to find Him living in and through you. You'll start to see the first signs of that. Now, um, we've got about another 13 minutes where I would like to explain the following concept going to verse 3. Verse 3 says, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. It says, This word of promise, this gospel of God, which He promised through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, is the word concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now there's a one hour message right there. But let us see what we can do. It says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, in order to understand the word son, what it means to be a son of God, we need to understand what the Jews and the ancient people understood under being a son of God. The Mesopotamian civilization, for well over 3,000 years, from about the 4th millennium BC up until the time when the Greek people, uh, the, uh, uh, I mean even the Roman Empire, even upon, up until that time, they ascribed human attributes to their gods. They would say, well, the ancient people, the gods need food or the god we need to make food for the gods or the gods are like humans they can be angry they can uh, be sad they can be uh, 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 mad you know it a, a folkloric idea or explanation of the gods where they would ascribe the attributes of the folk to the gods uh, you know um, th- where they would say these gods are basically like humans they said that all the time. They would go in the, and, and they would say, you know, that they would even say the gods had sex. They would say that the gods were doing all the things that humans did. But there's one thing that they never ascribed to the gods, and that was mortality. They never ascribed to the gods mortality, which then would define a god as an immortal a true god would be an immortal so when we talk about paul writing concerning his son or the son of god we can think on what the people in rome must have heard what would uh, a roman citizen that was hellenized that had his the, the, the Mesopotamian beliefs, even up until the Roman Empire times, flooded into the beliefs of people. What would they have heard if you have said that Jesus was the Son of God? 
they would have believed that there were many gods, then they would then hear the Christian talk about the most high God. Just the way Paul went into Athens and explained the whole thing there at the Areopagus and explained the whole things about the unknown God, which is the most high God that doesn't live in temples and so forth. They would say there's a most high God, and now he has a son, and they say that this Jesus is the son of a most high God. They would immediately say, well, if he is a son of God, or a son of a God, he has to have God-like attributes. And the thing that will determine if you are a son of God, according to the ancient Mesopotamian looking of the way they looked at gods, was that they had to have immortality, eternal life. So here Paul comes and he says, I'm talking about the son, about the son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. He starts something very deep here. So he's saying to these people, listen, this Jesus was the son of a God or the son of God. Some of these people would have heard the son of a God. I'm using a God not because I think there is many gods. I'm just trying to explain what these people would have heard in that time. So if you would come and say that someone is a son of God, the only true proof whereby a human would know if somebody would be a true son of a God would be bodily immortality or the immortality of the person and the human. We can take this even a bit further. Should a voice from a God come from the heavens declaring someone to be his son, which happened at the baptism of Jesus, it would be up to the God to prove that that man is his son. This could only happen by granting the son incorruptibility, which belongs to a God. Should there truly have been a voice that came from heaven declaring to a mortal that he is the son of God, the mortal would have had confidence that should he die, that the God would raise him from the dead. And he'd understand that. That is the mindset wherein Jesus lived. You must understand, when Jesus was born as a human, he was a normal Jewish boy. And the Holy Spirit was working in his heart. And he heard that he was the Son of God. What? In the ancient setting that he was living in, where the ancients, the, the I mean, 4,000-year-old tradition, building up into a people group called the Israelites, what do you think Jesus believed in his setting? Who did he believe he was? He believed that he was the son of God. So what does that mean? That meant that he had the hope of immortality. As long as what he lived, a mortal life, wherein he needed to take his next breath to live, because Jesus needed to take another breath to live. He uh, fled from Herod. I mean, his parents, God said, take him to another place. Why? Because the point that Paul is making here is, he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. As a human, he was a normal mortal. But we want to say that this normal mortal is the son of God. So he's already coming with the whole gospel of God right there. The gospel of God was, that God grants his eternal life to man 
right there in verse 3. Let's read it again. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Concerning his son. I've got the gospel of God, which is about his son. Oh, so he must be an immortal. If you were a human and you heard a voice from heaven that said, you are my beloved son. What would you do? You would think, well, it's up to the God to manifest me as his son to prove it. And should I face death, even the death of the cross, I would have the hope of the resurrection. For I believe that God said that I am his son. Therefore, I have no need to try and make myself a son of a God by trying to attain unto eternal life by my own works. That is what is going on here. I think we can quickly touch on um, made of the flesh according to the seed of David. It says they're made... um, made according to the flesh of the seed of David, owing his birth to Mary, born of a woman under the law. Romans 3.19, the fact that you need to have a law is that you disqualify yourself to the point that you say, I am weak and laws are needed in a country because people are not holy. Where there is no law, there is, uh, or where there is a law, it testifies of the fact that people are, are weak and have normal flesh. So what this means is this. Jesus was born under the law, meaning he was standing under the law. What does that mean? That means that he had a flesh that could be tempted. That's what it means. You don't put laws in the street because people don't have the ability to drive like hooligans. You put laws in the street because you know what's in people. So Jesus made of a woman the emphasis here. And for us, many of us, we don't want to see this. But Jesus made of a woman could be tempted. That's why when he went into the desert, I mean, he came and he said, I am the representative of all of humanity. Then he went into the desert to be tempted of the devil. And when he was tempted of the devil, what is Tempt means. It means that there was a drawing inside him to try and ought not to believe God for eternal life, but to trust his own ability for eternal life. And the law is put upon people to show them, listen, you don't have eternal life. Never trust in your own ability to bring forth life. Rather, trust God. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that Paul is saying, made of a woman under the law or made according to the flesh of the seed of David. He said it another way in Galatians 4. Um, it says here that, uh, or Romans 3, that if you read Romans 3 in depth as well as Galatians 4 from verse 1. I don't have it in the notes here. I don't know why. But it says here that he was born of a woman made under the law. Why? What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was, should you want to live by your own power, that you will see your own mortality. Jesus was a person that, should he wanted to live by his own power, and not by the power of God, you would see sin manifest in him. That's why he was tempted. We could see the temptation. But he was yet without sin. 
Meaning that he didn't fall for the temptation, but he trusted God. And God brought forth that eternal life in him. Well, we're going to only do up to verse 3 in our next uh, Sunday message. We're going to continue from verse 4, for where we're going to see that he is the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, where he's declared as a true Son of God. Let me summarize. Romans one, Paul comes, he says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it is according to the gospel of God. Verse 2, which was promised. Verse 3, and this is about Jesus. So he says God had a good news message. I am an apostle of this message, sent to bring forth this message. This message was all about God promising man eternal life from the beginning, showing the integrity of God all through time, and how what God has promised has now started to manifest in the man, Jesus Christ. And that we don't have to try and live holy and work holy and work ourselves up to get a place in heaven, but wherein God made it his responsibility to bring life to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, which is then also seen as God absolutely awesome i want to thank you for watching make sure that you watch or get the whatsapp messages during the week and uh, you can write to our office or just uh, i'm sure on my website i've got a place there i also put it in facebook again the whatsapp number whatsapp is an app where and i can send you a voice message like a devotional i send it from mondays to thursdays and you'll be blessed by that get that and be encouraged by that and also watch our facebook live stream I will also be on my way to Zambia in this week and I will be making messages as I go. Know that God loves you and he cares for you and he preserves your life forever. Amen.